I pray it said about my life that I did more to build your name than mine. That needs to be the thought of every Christian. It's not about us. It's about him and what he did. And uh, today is Revival Sunday, and uh, as I announced last week, we did have a speaker lined up, and uh, with just different things going on with the church, we, he called me and wasn't able to make it, and I understood everything that was going on there, and, and we definitely are going to reschedule uh, Brother Gillett for another time. Uh, but with that, we scheduled Revival Sunday, and the Lord immediately, with, within a few minutes, laid this message on my heart out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, so if you would please turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And then also, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at for just a few minutes, right after we uh, pray here in just a minute. So Second Chronicles chapter 7, then we'll reference Acts chapter 2 if you want to be able to look along with me as I go through that. We've been in a lot of revival meetings and had a lot of special revival emphasis days. And uh, this lady once asked Billy Sunday, who, who knows of Billy Sunday, ever heard of him? Old baseball player turned uh, evangelist and... She came to him and she said, why do you keep having revivals when it doesn't last? And he looked at her and he said, why do you keep taking baths? And uh, we need revival from time to time. And sometimes we get dirty. We need to be clean. Sometimes we get far, farther from God than we should be. We need to be brought back to where God would have us to be. So let's stand here together, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And we're uh, together gathering as a, as a church um, with an emphasis on revival. And not just in our own hearts, but that it would leak out of here and make a difference in those around us that we interact with every day. We look here, just one verse together this morning, chapter 7, verse 14. It says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We look here this morning at the ifs and thens of revival. The ifs and thens of revival. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you, Lord, with all my heart for who you are and what you've done for us. But I pray today that as we're here, God, we're here, every one of us, God, aware of you, aware of the call on our life, Lord, as Christians, to make a difference, to be different. God, do not live for ourself. Lord, I pray that as we understand that this morning and we have that awareness, God, that our heart would be intent on obeying you, however you speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us now. I pray, God, you would direct as you see fit. Lord, bless this service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost. Peter preached to thousands of people, one of the most famous messages ever preached by man. And As you look there in Acts chapter 2, there's just a small amount of days since Jesus left this world and he ascended into heaven and Peter preached this message and in Acts chapter 2 was wrapping up what, he, what God had given him as he's trying to reach these people. And I can imagine Peter there, possibly on the southern steps there at the Temple Mount, preaching to all these Jews, all these people about Jesus. In verse 36, as he was wrapping up the message, he said there, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. He had preached about who Jesus was and their need to turn to him and, and look to him for salvation. And he said, you, you crucified him, he died for you. 
And as he finished the message in verse 37, the people's hearts were pricked. And then they responded, they were moved by what was said. And they looked at Peter, they looked to the other apostles that were around him. And they said, what shall we do? We heard the message, now what should come of us? And Peter looked at them and he said, you need to repent and be saved, be baptized. And, and then every one, every one of you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost after salvation. And then look at verse 39. He said, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people saved and baptized and added to the church there in that one service. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't know about you, if that happened here, I'd be pretty excited about that and what a special thing that was. And as we look at our Bibles this morning, those great results that God brought at that moment with using Peter was not a one-time event. We can look in the Bible and we can find time after time where the Lord spoke through a man that was without God nothing. And God spoke through that man and great things happened and decisions were made and people were brought closer to the Lord. And God didn't work in that way just for that one moment in Acts chapter 2 and and then he was done working through man he still does that today and understanding this point in the history of the world we are in the last days right now just as Peter was preaching in the last days in Acts chapter 2 the spirit of God today is no different than it was then and he is available to all remember what we read there in verse 39 The gospel, Jesus and what he did for us isn't just given or he didn't just come for a select group of people. He didn't just come for a small percentage of of the world's population. That promise Peter told them was for those that were listening. And he said, not only for you, it's for your children. And then he said, it's not only for your children, it is for those that are afar off, those who who are far separated from where we are today. It is a message for everybody. And I want to tell you today that God is not done using fishermen like Peter to preach his message. He's not done using tax collectors like Matthew to repent and, and turn to God and, and, and stop living for themselves. But, but for God, he's not done using uh, militant men like Simon uh, the Zealot. The message is for all, and he wants all to come to him and then live for him. Revival can still happen in the world we live in. Revival can happen in Southwest Baptist Church. What is revival? Definition given here is the revival, someone once said, is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. It revives a vivid sense of sin and leading to repentance, praise, and love, with the gospel then being furthered. Over my ministry, I've studied a lot of revivals. I've read about a lot of them in the first, in in every revival, every true revival from God, not just a stirring of men, not just an emotional experience, every true revival that happens, first of all, God comes. God meets with them. In 1739, John Wesley and George Whitfield and some of their friends, I think you've heard those names before, had his praise dinner on New Year's Eve together. 
They ate together and they celebrated the new year in and they prayed for quite a bit of time that night. And, and, and Wesley wrote at about 3 a.m. that night, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried for exceeding joy. Revival begins with the restoration and sense of the closeness of our God. And then when that happens, secondly, there's a renewed love for the gospel. As you grow nearer to God, as an individual grows nearer to God, there's this overwhelming awareness of what a person deserves because of their sins and then what their Savior did for them. Leading them to be able to do nothing but praise God for it and then tell others what's been done for them. And then the third stage in revival is then a moving of repentance. An overwhelming sense of what God has done and God's presence to where we realize the sinners that we are and the things that are between us and God and, and we can do nothing but repent of those things and turn and go towards the God who saved us. In the Ulster Revival in the 1920s, many shipyard workers were saved, many just working, hardworking um, middle and lower class men who had stolen a lot of tools on the job over their years working. And during this revival in 1920, so many shipyard workers brought back all these stolen tools after repenting that the companies had to build shed after shed after shed to be able to house the tools that had been returned. Then the last thing is a renewed leading and following of the Spirit of God. Once revivals happen, people grow in godliness. They grow in their, their Christian maturity and their new life in Christ. You can look in the Word of God and find Paul and going to Thessalonica, and he was only there for less than three weeks. But in those three weeks, God worked quickly, and Paul left a thriving, growing church after three, three weeks of starting. I want to see revival. You know, we were looking to have our guest preacher today. The Lord, the Lord knew everything that would happen. He called and said he couldn't be here, and I was disappointed. I wanted a special Sunday for you, and for you not have to listen to me every week as you have. I was looking forward to that. And as I was discouraged for a moment, and I started to pray to God about this, I, I was quickly reminded that revival doesn't come because a guest preacher comes. A man can't bring revival to us. It doesn't come because I, as a pastor, put it on the calendar. This is Revival Sunday. This is when the church is going to have revival. It doesn't happen because I put it on the calendar. It's not something that any of us can manufacture. It's something that only comes from God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 85, wilt thou, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? They knew that the, the thought of revival and the need for revival could not come from man or anything man could do. It would be something that could only come from God and it is God and only God that can bring revival in our hearts and only bring revival in the world that we live in. Revival can't be organized. But someone once said it can't be organized, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. So as you look at this text together today, I'm not asking you to make revival happen. All I'm asking you today is to consider your heart. And right now, as, as, as we're seeking the Lord to, to move amongst us and to speak to our hearts, it's just all I'm asking you to do is to raise your sails up. And if God speaks, move. 
Make changes. Obey. When revival comes, the minds and hearts of those that are revived have a new focus on things pertaining to eternity to where nothing else matters but God and the life he's called us to live. Many of us in here have been in church much of our life. And you can probably think of moments in your life where you were closer to God than you ever were. For some of us, it might have been shortly after salvation. It might, it might have been a time where you knew you, you put your faith and trust in God and you were just awakened and, and, and fired up by that and you, you were in his word every day, you prayed to him every day, you, you were growing and learning in him and maybe things since then have changed. Maybe some of you can think of a time in your life where there was this great need or temptation or trial that had come in your life and, and as God allowed you to go through this difficult circumstance that brought you closer to God than you ever were before to where your heart was, was, wanted nothing but him in his presence. Maybe many of you like me can think back to a time under your old, under your old pastor or, or a special meeting as a, as a young adult or as a teenager to where God moved and God met with you and there was a revival and a change that went on in your heart. Maybe you're here and you know that you're saved. You know you're a child of God, but things just aren't what you know they should be as a Christian or what you desire them to be. The children of Israel were familiar with those similar feelings. As we get back to our text in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God was communicating with them here in this portion of Scripture during the dedication of the temple under King Solomon. And God has already shown his acceptance of the new temple. He sent fire down from heaven. It consumed the sacrifice there on the altar. And the temple, as it was finished, was then filled with the glory of God. And the people worshiped God with their praise and their humility and their sacrifices after several days of celebration. And then God came and he spoke to Solomon. You know, as, as we understand the word of God, just even just a little bit today, we know that it's no secret to us that the children of Israel experienced great victories, isn't it? They saw, they saw God do some amazing things, and it's just a wonderful thing as we go throughout the word of God and see the, all the victories and all the miracles that God performed for his own people. It was no secret to them the power of God, and it was no secret to them what it was like to be under the blessing of God. But it was also no secret to them to understand what it was like to not have his presence anymore they understood very well what it felt like to have God turn their back on him because of things they had done or turning to other idols to have that separation from him to experience defeat to have his power removed from them to be taken into exile and as we look here in the seventh chapter of second chronicles they've dedicated the temple and they know the importance of his blessing and Solomon in his wisdom is seeking God and wants God to be fully behind Israel. And then God speaks to Solomon and says, I will bless Israel if they honor me. But if they again choose to turn their back on me, there will be consequences. And as we look at this verse today, there's a promise that if we have gone away from God, that if we repent and turn to God, God will hear Help and heal if people return to him in humble repentance. There's a provision to be met. We look here in verse 14, there we find the word if 
And then we then find the word then. If and then. We, we, we know how that works. For instance, in, in our life, if I don't eat lunch, then I will be hungry. I will actually be hangry, just ask my family. If certain conditions will be met, then this particular thing will happen. If there's a lot of amens today, I will end the message more quickly than normal. The if and the then. We look here, verse 14, we first of all see the ifs. To have revival, there must first be humility. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. We know a little something today about pride, don't we? A long time ago I read a story about Muhammad Ali and he was on the airplane. He had just gotten on on a certain trip he was taking and he's on the airplane. He's talking to people as throughout the plane, signing autographs, cracking jokes and, and putting on a show as he would often. And as he was there, it was time for the plane to take off and he was the only one not in his seat. The stewardess came to him. She said, Mr. Ali, I need you to sit down and put your seatbelt on. And he looked at her and he said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And she looked at him and she said, well, Superman doesn't need a plane either. Sit down and put your seatbelt on. There's many times in our life where we think more highly of ourselves than we should, don't we? Well, the Bible says pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And as God gave this instruction to the children of Israel, he wanted them to come to the place where they admitted that they could not help themselves out of their problems. And he, he, they needed to understand no matter how big in number they became, no matter how many victories they had had or were going to have, no matter how many blessings they could look at and thank their God for, they were not enough. And this was a major problem for them. You know, often we can look in the Word of God and we can look at the children of Israel and we would find them grow a confidence in, in what they had and what they could do and what had happened in the past and they would fall to a temptation to go to other gods. They turned their back on God. The trial would come and they would no longer be trusting Him as they should. They would just think He'd led them to die. And there, there's an encouragement here where he says they need to humble themselves. They need to turn away from any idols that they may have returned to. And false gods that admit that those could not help them. Their dependence needed to be on God and God alone. And as Christians, we often struggle with a similar problem. We make decisions. And we go about things in our own way, our own direction, our own time. And then everything else we have can then Go to God, whatever's left. And it's often not until that we need him again that we go to him again. If we are to humble ourselves, as this passage tells us today, we need to remember, first of all, who we are. We are the creation of God, and we are created for the pleasure of God. And understanding who we are, that passage we read this morning, that reminder we had, we have a holy God. A holy God that hates sin. 
And the best that I could ever do, the best that you could ever do, is never going to be enough. The Bible says we always will fall short. There's nothing we could do to reach, to, to reach that level. There's nothing we could do to hit the mark. We will miss the mark over and over again. Isaiah wrote that our righteousness is as filthy rags, and without him we would be headed for hell. If we want God to work in our life, if we want God to, to do something great in our life, in our relationship with him, and, and bring healing to us, we need to be reminded of the need for humility in our life, just like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he saw God in all of his glory. He saw the angels there worshiping him, and he had this experience seeing the holiness of God, and he was overwhelmed with a thought to a point where he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, and I am a man of unclean lips. That's a prophet. Man, that was more righteous than all the rest of the people around him. And as he looked at himself in light of God, he was filthy, unclean. The first step of revival is humbling ourselves before God. Will you do that? Do you recognize that you need him? Do you understand today that he is worthy of any sacrifice, any surrender you could ever give. If we want revival, we need, first of all, humility. Secondly, this morning, prayer. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Every one of us need prayer in our life. There's temptations, there's, there's things that are going to come, and if we are not looking to God for help and seeking him to help us in, in those moments, we will surely fall. Paul wrote to Timothy of another thing about prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he said a few verses later, Speaking of God who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. We need to be people of prayer for ourselves to walk as God would have us to walk. And for others to either come to the Lord or to keep, continue to live for the Lord. Do you think this morning that prayer is important? An old preacher once said, pray as if everything depends on God. Then work as if everything depends on you. If you don't pray you will not be fully equipped for the life that you are living right now. If you don't pray, as the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4, you will not have the peace of God that passeth all understanding when the world has no peace. If we don't pray, we won't see God work in our homes as he desires to. We will not see victory over the flesh. We need to be people and Christians that are given to prayer. We need to go to God daily for spiritual needs. We need to go to God daily for others' salvation and others' needs. We need to go to God for power in our Christian life and power in the church that he has called us to be part of. We need to pray to God for victory over our enemies and the giants that are going to no doubt be in our way. And as we look through the Psalms, we see a man named David pouring out on a regular basis his heart to the Lord, don't we? We can look and we can read these psalms and we see a roller coaster. Sometimes he immediately is all the way at the bottom in that valley. And then as he prays, God reminds him of his goodness and he's back in strong faith with God. He seeks the help of God regularly. 
He prayed to God for restoration. What was he called again? A man after God's own heart. What did he accomplish? As a young boy, he defeated a lion. He had no business defeating. He killed a bear. He had no strength to to kill. As a young teenager, he defeated a giant named Goliath that no other man would even approach. As a captain of the army of Israel, he led them to victory after victory, no matter how outmatched they were. When the king of Israel, Solomon was, Saul, excuse me, was, was out to kill him, not once but twice because of, of God's help, he didn't kill him when he had an opportunity to kill God's man. Was David perfect? No, not by any means. But when he failed, he went back to God. And what happened when he went back to God? He was restored. In 2 Chronicles, God is speaking to the Israelites and he says, if you get to a point where you are far from me, if you get to a point to where my blessing is no longer on you and you want to be restored, humble yourselves and pray. We need to be people that pray for God to do what we cannot do. This week I saw a a story of D.L. Moody, famous evangelist from Chicago, and thousands of people were saved under his ministry, and he went on a sabbatical to England. He had no plans of preaching or doing any ministry work. He was there just to get his energy back and a time of rest, and then to get back to, to ministry there in Chicago after being rested up and And as he was going through a certain town there in England, this preacher saw him and he said, Mr. Moody, you are so well known, would you come to our church this Sunday and preach for us? So he went there that Sunday morning and he preached and he wrote in his journal, he said, that afternoon he wrote on that Sunday, he said, that was the deadest crowd I've ever preached to in my life. And then he wrote, the only thing worse than having to preach to this church on a Sunday morning is that I promised them I will come back again tonight and preach. He wrote that. So he went back that night to preach, and about halfway through the message, people started to liven up a little bit. And in the middle of the message, he felt compelled to ask. He says, if anyone has a desire to be a Christian, I I would like you to to let me know, and I'd love to talk to you in another room. And as he began to do this, in the middle of the message, people all over the auditorium started standing up. He said, he goes, I think you might have misunderstood me. If you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, as soon as we are done, go to the other room and I would would love to meet with you and pray with you. The message finished and he went over to that room a little bit after the service and the room was full of people, standing room only, hundreds of people there to be saved. Moody looked at this preacher and he says, what does this mean? The pastor looked at him and said, well, I think you need to come back I'm not sure what it means, but you need to come back tomorrow night, it looks like. And Moody didn't stay, he left. But he got on the train and he went to Ireland to continue his vacation. And when he got off the train there in Ireland, there was a telegram waiting for him at the train depot. And it said, come back, revival has broken out. So he got back on the train there in Ireland. He went back to England and preached for 10 straight nights and 400 people came to Christ. He wrote at the end of that week, I don't understand why this is happening. These people were dead, 
and something changed it. What he didn't know is for years, this 80-year-old woman named Marianne Adelard had read one of his sermons in the paper. She had pinned that up in her room, and every day she prayed that God would send D.L. Moody to her church. She wanted revival. That is revival prayer. You know, often we pray for a few minutes to start our day, and we think we're ready for church or work. We go through our list, we make a request, we cross all the, all, all the boxes. And then we expect because we did that, that God is going to move mightily through us because we did our duty. It takes more than just an act. It takes true communion with God. We need to approach God by putting down our pride and admitting our own insufficiency and hold on to him until he moves in power in our lives and in his church. Leonard Ravenhill, he said, the church is dying on its feet because it is not living on its knees. Are we people that truly pray to God? It's as if my people, so first of all, humble themselves, secondly, pray. The third, the third if that is needed is a seeking of God. God says, and seek my face. That phrase means to seek to find or to seek to require, to desire, to request. To seek deity in a prayer or worship. That phrase is implying a desire to enter into the presence of someone. Not only are we to humble ourselves and and, and pray to God but we are to live our lives with a hunger for the presence of God. There should be nothing in your life or mine that we desire more than God. Nothing in our life that should be greater than God. Nothing we have, nothing we think, nothing we do, we should allow to distract us from him or seeking his face. And you may be here today and you, you, would, you would raise your hand and you would say, Pastor, I want God to do something great in our church. I want God to bring revival to our city. But I'm going to tell you today, revival doesn't come just because we seek revival. Revival comes when we seek God. And may we not operate as Christians with a self-serving spirit only seeking what God can do for us or what God can bring for us. But instead, first of all, just start seeking his face because we hunger a relationship with him more than anything that he could ever do for us. He wants us to love him for who he is. A true revival happens when the Christian falls in love with Jesus. And you say, I want God to be with me. I want that closeness that I once felt or I want that closeness I've seen other people have. Let me ask you, are you seeking him? We have a promise in the word of God that says, draw nigh unto me. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. There should be this intense desire 
every one of our hearts to just be closer to God. I'm thinking of Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live as he was in prison. He said, I'm going through all these things in chapter 3 that I may know him. He goes, I'm doing everything I'm doing in my life and I'm, I'm going through the motions. I'm, I'm, I'm serving him and I'm doing all these things, suffering all these, these horrible times in my life that I may just know him a little more and understand his power and his fellowship. You know, David in the Psalms, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David in another another Psalm, Psalm 42, he says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you seek God in that way? Do you desire fellowship with him in that way? Do you understand what seeking God looks like? It's not just about going to church. It's not just about having a, a devotional life and reading your Bible or listening to the right music. Seeking Him is about wanting Him more than anything else in the world. How devoted would you say you are to seeking His face? So many Christians have stopped seeking God. And it's not intentional. It's not something we've chosen to do. But often we have different goals or desires in life that have just gotten in the way of our devotion for a little while. To a point to where we just no longer have any room for him. If you had to be honest today, what do you seek most in life? Where where are your priorities when it comes to the things you do in your life? Is it your job? Is your priority your bank account or your retirement? Is your priority your family? Your spouse? A hobby? None of those are bad things at all. Those are things God's given us. But when anything but God is the number one priority of our life, the number one thing we are seeking. We are off pace. And if you want revival, you need to understand misplaced priorities are the number one enemy of it. Seek him. To have revival, there must be humility. Secondly, prayer. Third thing, seeking of God. The fourth thing, repentance. It says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Children of Israel were being blessed here at this point in scripture. But they got to a point that where their relationship, but if they got to a point where their relationship as, as a country was hindered, it would have been because of sin. And if that sin was there in their life, God is telling them you need to repent You need to turn from those things where your new allegiances are back to me, the one who chose you and blessed you. If you have gotten far from God, restoration is not possible without repentance. That word repent there means to turn back or to turn away. Whenever you are turning away from one thing, you are naturally turning away from something to something else. 
And God was calling his people. He says, if you get far from me, turn from your wicked ways. Turn in, in turning, turn back to your Lord, me. If we want God to bless us like he can and like he wants to, then we are going to have to search our hearts for anything that might be evil. Is there anything today between you and God? If we want revival to come, before revival can come to anyone, the, that person must, must be clean. There needs to be confession of that sin. There needs to be a turning away from it. And anything less than that is not true repentance. When we sin, I, I want to encourage you, when you sin in your life, we need to be broken over those things we've done against God. And a lot of us are broken over sin today, but it is not our own sin. It is the sin of other people. A lot of us are very consumed, and, and, and it's a burden I have as well with the sins of our country or, or the sins of, of politicians or the sins of people that we care about in our life. And we need to be burdened for the sins of others and need to be burdened for the direction of our country and of our world. But we do not need to be burdened or broken over those sins to an extent that it is more broken than we are over our own sins. It is our sins that hinder revival in our life, not the sins of other people. So what about our sins? In a book called I Surrender, the author, he wrote that the church's problem often is the misconception, listen to this, that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It then is a change in belief without a change in behavior. Pride is a sin. Lying is a sin. Hurting your body, the body that God has given you, the temple of God through drugs, alcohol, self-harm is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Lust is a sin. Taking the Lord's name in vain is a sin. Rage is a sin. Covening is a sin. Not giving what God has commanded us to give is a sin. Not being the mother or father, husband or wife God has called you to be is a sin. And, and, we're, and we live our lives today saying we want the blessings of God and we want his closeness, we want revival, we want God to work in our families. But if we move towards those things, if we move towards a life that God has instructed us to live or towards those good things, that, those blessings that God has for us, without ever removing any sin from the life, we can't expect God to work through that. We can't expect God to bless that. We can't expect God to be present for that. We need a moving of repentance. There was a man that was praying with his pastor at the altar and he prayed a prayer that the pastor had heard many times and you may, you may feel similar in your life at times where there's just a mess there and all these sins that need to be confessed and this man was praying and he used this analogy, he said, Kill, he said Lord, get the cobwebs out of my life. And sometimes we, we look at our hearts and our lives and there's just mess all around and a, a bunch of things in the way and we're like, God, get those out and that's a good thing to pray. Kill the cobwebs, Lord. But this pastor chimed in and he said, don't just kill the cobwebs, kill the spider. You know, many times we, we sin against God and we ask him to forgive us of some sin, but we never leave repenting. We never kill the spider. You know the sin that does so easily beset you. What needs to be repented of?
I'm not going to finish this verse. We'll, we'll finish it tonight, okay? Those are the ifs. We understand revival is a real thing. We've read about them. We've maybe experienced it at times in our life. But sometimes in real time, we look at it as something that is unattainable or improbable. We have a promise here that tells us if we do those things, God will bring healing. It all hinges on a willingness, an individual willingness to do what it is that God has instructed us to do. We look at our homes, our own problems, we look at the church, we look at the world and we see this downward spiral and often we question, I know what I'm supposed to do, but what's the use? I know God can, but he's not doing it. There's a man named William Wilberforce that felt the exact same way in the 1800s and he saw England and high in the slave trade in the 1800s and he looked around and he saw this moral and spiritual climate that saw no chance of taking a turn. And and he said this, he says, my own solid hopes for the well-being of my country depend not so much on her navies or armies nor on the wisdom of her rulers nor on the spirit of her people as on the persuasion that she still contains many who love and obey the gospel of Christ. I believe that their prayers may yet prevail. And he humbled himself and he prayed for God to bring change. It doesn't matter what we think can happen. It only matters what God says will happen if we do what he's told us to do. As we humbly approach God, with repentant hearts seeking him and his power, his wisdom. He can bring the healing every single one of us need. There's a lot of hope. But will we do our part? Will we do these ifs? So God can bring revival. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, 